Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Africa Whisperer, telling authentic African stories in a global way. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer. I mean, in South Africa, I'll talk about South Africa because I understand the policies. You find policies in customs that were implemented before democracy that are still in play today. South Africa says, if I'm going to import a machine, I want to build a factory. I need to pay 40% of the duty. But I'm going to use this machine to create employment. So why are you discouraging me? If you, if you want to discourage imports, you know, but why are you letting it even to a point that when you're even importing something that is going to bring about change and job creation, that is going to contribute to the GDP, you still impose a 40%, you know, import duty. And, and, and a policy that has been there for over centuries in today's age. But you want to talk about supporting businesses. My guest on this episode of the Africa Whisperer is truly everything that is right about us as a people. And his business is a reflection of what is possible when you have a vision and a clear plan on how to execute it. Now, as CEO and founder of Batu Sneakers, Theo Beloy has been ranked on some of the most impressive lists. And at 33, he has built a business that employs over 300 people in South Africa. And he's done so by putting people over profit, remaining committed to walking the journey with his customers, always striving for excellence in production value, being unashamed in celebrating the diverse cultures in South Africa, and most of all, remaining humble by consistently listening to and sourcing feedback from customers. Theo understands leadership in the marketplace. And one thing he also knows is that people do business with people that they like. Here's how the conversation went. Theo, so, you know, one of the reasons why I was just so excited to have this conversation with you is that when I think about the term, the African dream, you definitely encompass all of this. I feel that people who are African dreamers are those who dream beyond themselves and they, they prove that it's possible. And from this perspective, as an entrepreneur who's creating sustainable jobs and showing that entrepreneurship can work in Africa and it can make a change, you are definitely one of the people who fits that caliber. So welcome to the Africa Whisperer. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the invite. I truly appreciate it. I just want to kind of flash back a little bit right yeah. of, of course you've won so many awards and you're on so many different power lists did you ever think growing up was there ever an inclination in your mind where you thought this is how my life is going to pan out this is what's going to happen this is my life's purpose not not even you know not quite because i mean i grew up from i always say this that you know i am a product of opportunity you know more than anything else so throughout my life and throughout my journey, I've been awarded, you know, great opportunities. But literally, I know that those moments of opportunities, if well maximized, they would carry so much impact or they would create so much impact, you know. All I wanted to do growing up was just to better my life, you know, and, and be able mm. to, to provide for my family and change my, my family's background and, and break the cycle, the cycle of a, a education. A lot of people don't get in the right education and the right jobs, you know. And that's all mm. I ever wanted to do. I know that you know in those moments of opportunities, I will be able to maximize and you know build sustainable businesses that create you know impact. I think that when whenever you have intention, it's it's such proof that when you have great intent, you 
often end up exceeding what it is that you had ever even imagined that you'd be able to do. You know, when I think about South Africa and a lot of people will talk about if you're not based in South Africa, for example, many people around the world, as you know, South Africa is one of the most celebrated countries. People believe, wow, things are possible. You know, young black entrepreneurs and people are doing things. There's great stories coming out of South Africa. But then we often forget that South Africa is only really 28 years old and you being 33 means that you were born at a time where perhaps for your parents, your success would not have been possible. But it seems as though you have such a strong family base. You've gotten so many gems from your parents. What things did you learn from them growing up about dreaming, about possibility? Yeah, very good question. You know, so I wouldn't necessarily say I grew up under or I come from a poor background or anything like that. You know, I come from an average sort of skin family where dad was a male nurse at a hospital, in a public hospital. Our mom used to work for, you know, um, one of the top leading furniture stores in South Africa. And, you know, I grew up under, um, I think, you know, what you call normal or average South African family, you know. Yeah. But one thing that they really advocated for is being able to, you know, unleash my potential and, and maximize opportunities. Quite ironic. So I'm, I'm, I'm an accountant by profession. I really, really had a yeah. passion for, for accounting and really challenging the status quo, you know, because growing up in a village is, you know, there was this narrative around accounting that it's a very technical, a technically challenging um, subject or, or career to pursue, and it's not easy to qualify and so forth, you know. So my dad would often, you know, take my results with him or wherever he goes, and, and people would tell him that the son is doing well in accounting, you can actually, you know, pursue this career. So I even though I I, I mm. doubted myself because my teachers used to tell me things like, you know, the accounting that we teach you in high school is different from the accounting in 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 university, you know. So I always had that challenge with me in terms of pursuing accounting. But nonetheless, my parents always advocated for me to do the things that I love more than anything else and not to shy away from from a challenge, you know. And I think that's mm. kind of family support and, and that background from home really shaped me to be the person that I am. And Growing up in the villages, you know, it has taught me a lot around humility and respect and and being able to live with people without, you know, undermining anyone irrespective of their status, you know, and who they are in, in life, you know. So I think a lot of my my character and my leadership is embodied in, uh, is embodied by qualities and values that I got yeah. when growing up and I was taught growing up, you know, it's, it's generally who I am. And even the way I run my business today, I run it from... I run it with humility. I run it with transparency. You know, I'm inclusive in my approach. I respect people. So, so that is embedded. You know, those values are embedded a lot. You know, in me because of my bringing in my family. Wow, I really love that. Um, from the perspective of entrepreneurship, do you think that all of those qualities play a huge role? Because normally, when people think of entrepreneurship, it's kind of cutthroat. Take care of yourself first. Sure. Do you think that all of those values and qualities that you learned from your parents have impacted the growth and the success of Batu Sneakers? Hundred percent, because we are we are a business that works with people. Our business is supported by people. You know, I mm. trade that. You know, that those values has transitioned to be some of our company values, you know, and I embedded a lot in our brand promise as well, which ultimately connects to our clients, the people that work for us, you know, because you know, I think influence and culture and entrepreneurship comes from the top and, and people want to mm. work with not only, not, not only with businesses, but with also with people that embody the same values. Mm. And, and I think we try to transition that into our, our brand promise as well, you know, 
So um, mm-hmm. I work with different people in the business. Either they are service providers, they work for us. Some of them are our clients, you know. So those values have transitioned into the entrepreneur in me and also our company values as well. And it's very, very important that you actually have solid foundational values that you, you can be able to trade you know, buy. And I always say this, you know, a business goes beyond the call of trade. It's mm. business is people before profit. Mm. And, and if you don't know how to trade with people, you can't transition to profit. Mm. So that's how I run my business. And I think if, if I was not that person, it was going to be difficult for me to, to run the business the way I'm running it and for our business to grow. I could just drop Mike there and say, thank you, CEO. We've learned so much. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you've already, you've already shared so much. On one of the previous episodes um, of this podcast, we spoke to a lady from Senegal um, and her story reminds you of yours a bit. You know, um, her story reminds me of your story just a little bit. Um, she had a great executive position at Apple and then at L'Oreal. She was in Paris. She had, you know, she was traveling in and out of Senegal. Her parents were proud. Sacrifices were made so that she could study. And then she decided to be an entrepreneur. And I remember her basically saying that her parents were less than impressed, you know, and your, yeah. your story, from what I understand, your dad, um, he quit being a male nurse and then he went into real estate, yeah. which means that you just basically get money off commission yeah. and he sold his car to get you into university, yeah. right? Yeah. You get a great job, you're at PwC, you're traveling around, you know, going in and out of Dubai yeah. into South Africa, and then you step away and start your own sneaker brand. Yeah. So my, my story is kind of twofold. Firstly, the transition from having such a lucrative job into becoming an entrepreneur, because mm-hmm. I think that that's a lesson many Africans, you know, we can all learn from. And secondly, how it was that you broke the news to your parents and how did they feel about your decision to step out and be an entrepreneur? Thank you so much. So my dad is late and, you know, he's, he's, he's no, no. Worries. So he's made really good sacrifices and, you know, taught me very important lessons in life, you know, financial lessons. Lessons mm. around how to be a great man, how to be a great leader, and 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 really how to take risks because my dad worked as a business for about fifteen years into and and before quitting and going into real estate, right? And he always advocated for bravery and taking risks. Wow! And and he mm. told me one thing about missing. He always said this that fortune favors the brave, and you miss hundred percent mm. of the shots that you never you never take. And, you know, quite ironic mm. because of I, I thought I understood what those lessons until I got into business and I got to exercise <laughs> them, you know, because back then I thought it's yeah. just like a motivational thing. Then I got to understand what it means when I got into business. Mm. And even when my dad quit his job, it was always that thing from my mom that how can you quit your job and, you know, all of this. So my point is, <laughs> even when I quit my job, because, you know, my dad was late at the time. So I didn't even tell my mom yeah. that I quit my job. Okay. Um, I only told him four months later. And how I did it is because I was at PwC. I had to tell her that I'm actually in South Africa, in South Africa. I've got an audit project. I'm auditing MTN. And, <laughs> and the project is about eight months long. So I'll be here, you know? So four months later, then when, when the business was doing well, and I, was, I went to her and I'm like, Ma, you know, you know, nothing has changed, right? So you haven't been affected economically in anyhow, right? And I'm still okay, right? And she's like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, with that being said, all of that is because of I've quit my job and I've started my own business and I'm running it full time. Wow. <laughs> you know? So I love that. <laughs> so it was more of, of, of a cruel concept because the worry was how are you yeah. going to survive, you know? How I know how you're going mm. to, you know, how stable is this business and so forth. So I didn't want to have that conversation at the beginning because it would, to a certain degree, inflict, inflict fear onto me. So I had to do some sort of mm. approval concept to say, nothing will change. And I've, I've proved it that the last four months, nothing has changed. 
Mm. It was all done while I was running or starting my business. So that's how I went about it. Right. And, 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 and I think also in terms of my approach in starting the business, when I, I did about 18 months of research and development, and I never really spoke mm. to anyone about it. And, and I think that's very important to do that because when you open up too much, you're opening to a lot of risks and fear being inflicted onto you, you know? So you really need to mm-hmm. affirm yourself and affirm your business model, you know, before you can even start talking about it. And 18 months also really helped a lot in terms of, you know, just being, just working um, and doing proof of concept and everything else before telling, telling a lot of people about it. I really love this. It's really just the way that you've, you've, you've gone around everything, the creative approach with your, with your mom. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I, I really yeah. love that story. It's going to stick in my mind forever, honestly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about how you, you were good at, at, at accounting and, and you obviously, I think you studied at BCom, right? Yes. I mean, you're done well in that. So you technically could have gone into, you could have done any kind of entrepreneurship or trade because you understood numbers and you understand numbers, which is something that maybe a lot of people, entrepreneurs in general don't get. But I guess my question is for you, was it the passion for sneakers that drove you into entrepreneurship or was it mm-hmm. the passion for entrepreneurship that drove you into creating a sneaker brand? Good question. I would say it was a bit of both. So like I mentioned earlier on, if you allow me to tell the story. So um, when I started the business, I was at you know PwC in Mira region, based in Dubai, um, actually up for promotion, you know? And mm-hmm. like I've said at the beginning that I am a product of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I've always wanted to go back to the people that inspired me, my leaders at the time, people that awarded me great opportunities, just to sort of express a sense of gratitude in a form of a gift and whatever, you know? And then, mm. and then my, my sense of gratitude was often met by one big ask. And my mentors would go like, see, we don't want anything from you. We didn't help you because we want anything from you. You know, what you can do for us is to pay it forward. And I looked at my life, mm. I had so many great opportunities that, you know, got me to be in the Emir region, you know, doing well for myself. But oftentimes when I went back home in Alexander Township, you know, for those who don't know, Alex is one of the impoverished townships in South Africa. So when I go back there, mm. I realized that it's mm. actually, I'm one of the few that, that, that has managed to maximize opportunities or be awarded these great opportunities. A lot of our people in the townships were unemployed at the time, almost like sort of, you know, lost hope, you know. Mm. So when you talk to these guys, you realize that it's not because of their lazy or anything else. Just that some of them or a lot of them haven't been awarded the opportunities that some of us have gotten. So do I then go back to Dubai and look at Alex and say, you guys are lazy? Or do I actually go back and actually be a part of that and build something sustainable? And I can reignite hope. If possible, I can also create jobs for them, right? And that is my way of paying for it. Mm. So that is passion, right? It's, it's just a passion project that I want to do for myself. Yeah. But when I looked at it, what, to your question, how do I do that? What business do I build? Do I go into tech? Do I go into hospitality? What business do I go to? And I'm like, you know what? I, I've got a passion for sneakers. Uh, I was buying so many sneakers at the time, limited editions, mm. all the way from the UAE. Some I would buy from London. I would import them into the UAE. And oftentimes when I got back home, a lot of those editions were not around in, 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 in your sunset, in Cape Town, wherever, in South Africa, actually. And I would be one of the first people to have those sneakers. Mm. Then I realized that I'm buying so many sneakers, you know, and clearly I love sneakers and I enjoy sneakers. And the yeah. thing that says, if you're buying too much of something, 
then why just not own it? So I looked at my valuable collection of sneakers. I'm like, so many, like, so much money, thousands and thousands of US dollars in just a sneaker collection. I might as well own my own sneaker collection. Then I did about 18 months of research and development. And one of the findings from that, I realized that each and every, we've got about seven continents in the world. Each and every continent or each and every part of each and every region in the world has a fair presentation of a foodware brand. But when I came down to Africa, I, I couldn't find a foodware brand. When you go to South America, there's Ipanama, the Savannians. Mm. The state itself, got Nike by Fulmite, got Under Armour by Kevin Plant, you know, uh, Chuck Taylor or Converse by Chuck Taylor. A lot of European food brands, a lot of Italian foodware brands. But when I came to Africa, I couldn't find one foodware brand that could, you know, be benchmarked with those international foodware brands. So I thought about how, why don't we have that, you know, where we can have our own foodware brand that can be benchmarked with these international foodware brands. Benchmarked in product development, benchmarked in market share, benchmarked even in CSI. Why can't we have our own? So it was a balance of the two, you know. I want to pay it forward. I've got a passion for sneakers. I'm spending money on sneakers. We don't have a food brand that Africans can part affiliate with. So why not just follow the sneaker brand? So it was more than anything else by default through passion. And for me, it was it was a no-brainer. And mm. and I, I realized the gap in a in, in a market that is overly populated, you know, by international food brands that are dominating in Africa. And I, I had to go and mm-hmm. say. I'm going to build my own and I'm going to get the market share as well. So it was informed by passion and the big mm. ask of paying it forward. What is the process of actually starting to design the first Batu sneaker? How did you start the business from a physical perspective once you had done the 18 months of proof of concept? It was really difficult because also I was working with a consumer that I think through consumer behavior believed and there was a narrative around international brands are better than, you know, local brands because we haven't really had a successful, sustainable local brand at the time. Mm-hmm. So I had to really think about who am I selling to and what's, what's their consumer behavior like. From even designing the sneakers, I had to look at the trend. And at the time, the trend was colorful socks, uh, which was mainly dominated by uh, a brand called Happy Socks. Oh, yeah. So I was like, Happy Socks is dominating. A lot of people wearing this colorful socks. But why don't we build a happy shoe? A shoe that also embodies color and whatever. So that at least when I go to market or my go-to-market strategy can be, can relate to the trend of colorful socks. So I had to be very intentional and strategic about my go-to-market strategy so that there is an appetite for it that I can convey. And that is why with our shoes, we design them in a way that the mesh edition it's called colors on the soul, you know, because we're trying yes. to bring about colors. When we research, we realize that this, in true manufacturing, a lot of people don't play with color on the soul. They just keep it standard and plain. So if we can get a way of injecting color on the soul, it will bring about, I think, expression of design and creativity, and it will speak to trend. But not only that, we be intentional because the colors that we have on our souls represent South African black colors on the nice. So we need to have carry a better and bigger message. And then also another thing is we really have to think about the story. How do we actually communicate the story? So it needs to be deeply invested in and resonate with, with people basically. So the word part too, mm. it's a word that existed in South Africa way prior democracy in referral to a shoe mm. in the days of Sapphire Town. It's a total way, mm. which we now call slang, that was used back then to refer mm. to any type of a shoe. 
And the beauty about the Word Party is that, you know, we have 11 official languages in South Africa. You don't have to speak Zulu, Debele, or Tswana, or any of the official languages in the township to understand what Batu is. You can go to Soweto, Tembisa, Kugule, to all the townships, and you get there and say Batu, everyone will know what you're talking about. And I was like, that's, that's one thing that unites us. South African dream is, the Rainbow Nation dream is, we need unity, right? So this is one way that really unites us because irrespective of your culture, everyone knows what Batu is in South Africa. Why don't we take this concept and conceptualize it into a sneaker brand? And then from that's from brand. And from products, there's actually a trend around happy stocks. So why can our products then speak to the trend? Then we package it together into a brand and then we resonate with the people, then we resonate with the trend, you know, and then we go to market. And, you know, that's how I went about it. Very strong on the story, very strong on the trend. And I started obviously with, with a few pairs, 100 pairs. Actually, I was declined about 15 times by the fiction before I did even those 100 pairs. And then went back and then people really liked the brand. I mean, we tra- the first day we launched, I still remember it, we trended the whole day to a point that our, our website crashed because people were just taking on to this thing that speaks to them and say, this is so cool. And we didn't build a strong site to accommodate the traffic and the frequencies. So it crashed because <laughs> we didn't have the money to, to build a proper omni-channel, you know? And yeah. then, yeah, the rest is history. Then from then we built a business that, that resonated with the people a business that communicated impact, a business that created jobs, a, a business that was supported by the people, that is for the people, and you know, and to be where we are today. But to your point, how did you go about it? It was baby steps. Baby steps in product development, mm. baby steps in brand communication, and baby steps in putting the value chain together. Because even in our value chain, if you look into our value chain, we are not retailing to any other retailers. Batu is exclusively sold at Batu. And there's a reason why we do it like mm. that. It was research that went into that. So it was a big vision, a, a, a big model, a complicated industry, challenging, but we had to take baby steps into it. What I love is that your mind, you really think about every detail. You understand the power of story. You understand the power of the consumer. You just understand people. So it makes sense that the sneakers are called Batu and you understand the numbers. You mentioned about having your own store. So for people who are not in South Africa, who don't know, you guys currently have 25 shops around South Africa, which is incredible by any global standards at all. But I'm sure that there must have been moments where people were kind of like, okay, let us be your distributor. Let You know, that kind of thing. And uh, from my understanding, and you also are 100% owned. When did you say yes? And when did you say no? And wh- what made you decide to be like, okay, we're going to be our own distributors. We're doing it on our own. What was that? Because many people will be like, oh, great. Somebody wants, can just take this leg of the business. Thank you. Very good question. So you, earlier on, you mentioned intention, right? Mm-hmm. I had to really, I'm an accountant by profession. I've actually never worked in retail before. I've never been in casual in the retail store. <laughs> I had to look and do a thorough research and hence the 18 months research and development into South African retail landscape and study and try to marry that to our intention and our mission. So our mission says we want to reignite hope and we want to create sustainable jobs. And I always say this, our mission is not a a PR statement, which a lot of businesses is just a mission statement that sounds good for PR. So I I wanted to to, to leave our mission and and ask myself, how do I create sustainable jobs and how do I reignite hope? What model am I going to put in place? What value chain am I going to put together to make sure that we leave our mission? Okay, we can double tap on that. So if you look at South African retail, the major retail group that really dominate retail landscape in South Africa. Retail groups that take from local fashion 
have their own brands, have international brands, and they retail everything. And consumer goes to them, right? Easy for me to go to the retail mm-hmm. groups and say, I've got a product, I'm a local brand, please retail for me, right? And they could have easily taken me, especially with the growth and the appetite for party. But I will be cheating my mission. And, mm. and one would say, how? My mission says, I want to reignite hope and create sustainable jobs. So how do I do it? If I take part of my value chain and give it to the next person, I won't be able to create jobs. You probably mm. ask yourself, how? So if I own the end-to-end value chain, when I warehouse my products at my warehouse facility, I get to create employment there where someone packages, you know, I do quality control for the products at that level. If I move to the next level and supply chain and I say I don't want the fashion group to come and collect my stuff in my warehouse and retail them at their own shops but what I want is that I want to buy my own truck when I buy my own truck I create employment because I get someone to drive if I go to the next component of the value chain which is retail if I say I don't want to go to the major retail groups and give them the product to sell but what I do is that I actually going to build my own stores I get someone to work at the stores I create jobs next level which is big thing data when theo comes to goes to the major retailer for part to to buy part and then he buys part then where does the data the name same name theo's contact details wow. email address who keeps that it's not bad the retailer the retailer mm. So I'm like, I'm not gonna do that I'm gonna keep my own data because when theo comes to my store I get to capture the data and I use the data to repurpose, to remarket, to re-engage the consumer. End-to-end value chain. <laughs> Intention. Why? Because I want to reignite hope and I want to create sustainable jobs. You are so clear in every aspect of your business. I think that th- that's one of the things that, you know, that we can all learn about just the clarity that you have. You're clear on your mission. It seems like with every single step, you make sure that everything sits with what the, the original mission and vision is for the business. It's it's really incredible. Yeah. You have, I think you have about 300 employees. I'm curious, yeah. which department would you say has the largest number of employees? And what are some of the stories that you're hearing from the people who are part of, in essence, the, the Batu family about how working with your business has changed their lives? True. So I think it goes without saying because the, the, the nature of our business, we, we are retail business uh, with about 33 stores. So we've got about 130 plus north uh, people employed in retail alone, wow. you know, which almost equates to about, you know, 48% of our employee headcount, you know. Mm. So it's about that. So retail obviously employs a lot of people followed by the operation side of the business. And, you know, quite ironic, a very good question that you're asking about impact and people. So in our business, and, and I always say this, that people look at Theo Baloyi's story and the Bachi story mm. and say it's inspiring, you know, and it's motivating. Fair enough, good. But if I tell you that at Bachi, we have more inspiring stories from people mm. and about how this business has changed their lives and how they started. We have people that have started off as drivers, mm. as receptionists. Today, they are leading e-commerce. People that started as packers, today they are our warehouse managers. People that have went on to get their first undergrad qualification, some are even going for their postgrad qualification. We have people that have bought their first car, some are even on their third car. We have people that have bought their first houses and built homes for their parents. You know, um, we have that kind of caliber people and through different types of stories. And we have people that have volunteered in the business before being employed 
by the business. Mm. You know, someone walking to 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 waking up, having commitments for the day, passing a bar, passing by a party store, sees the queues, mm. stops and cancels everything else, and says, "Guys, I can help you with the queue. I'm gonna volunteer. I don't want anything. Do that for two consecutive months until they're employed." Today, they head up our quality control Ooh. business unit. And many other stories that sometimes till today, I hear some of the stories and it's quite amazing. I mean, just this week, we opened a store in Peter Marie's bed, mm. KZN. And the Monday, just the past Monday, I wrote something on LinkedIn about how I wish, you know, people to get employed and wishing them a great week and, you know, letters of appointments and, and so forth, you know. And this week, actually, the, the, the code says, may this new week bring you good news and more wins. Letter of appointment, congratulations, here with the increment letter and off and attaches the offer. Mm. I meet someone at the store this week who just got employed by Batu and they are our store manager at the, new, at the newly opened store. They tell me that Theo, first thing that I did when I woke up, getting ready for the interview at Batu, went on to LinkedIn and saw your status. Mm. Five days later, I'm actually employed by Batu mm. and I'm the store manager here. So that spoke to me. You were actually saying that to me. With music and with sneakers, for me, I'm a sneakerhead. I don't think I'm at your level, but, <laughs> you know, I consider myself yeah. a sneakerhead. <laughs> and I know for me, my first interaction with sneakers was obviously what I saw in music videos. That was where I kind of developed the love for it, right? South African music yeah. is blowing up globally. You've got Batu sneakers yeah. as well. Do you ever find collaboration points? And are you also in a position now where you're hearing people from strange places in the world saying, oh, they love the Batu sneakers or they may say Batu or <laughs> whatever they can yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that a lot. And I think for me, also a, a very good element of how we've actually got to build the brand and an and approach is that we are always on, and which we're utterly grateful for, you know, always maximize opportunities of being in great conversations, you know, people opening up their networks so that we can share their story. I mean, this platform alone, mm. it's, it's an extension and it's a platform for us to tap into a different audience, into a different region and talk about our stories, you know? And sometimes it could be even from conversations when people are not understanding our business or they don't know what it means or they can't call it right. It's also an opportunity for us to amplify our brand and talk about our story and our brand. And it's an extension, you know? Mm. Either it's from personal capacity where I get invited to give keynotes in, in, to corporates, to, to a certain leadership team that meets a, a, a global, you know, um, corporate you know, it's, it's always an opportunity. We always look at everything else, every platform, every network as an opportunity mm. to grow our business. And now in terms yeah. of just expansion, uh, what are what are you looking at? Uh, obviously, without going too much into the details of what your plans might be, but are you hoping on seeing yeah. Batu more presence across the, the African continent globally? Is this something as part of your plans? Would it be franchising? Would it be How would you go about I expand the business further, starting with the Sedek region. Mm-hmm. I mean, just this year alone, um, we were on the top 100 most admired African brands. Mm-hmm two consecutive years in that list. Mm-hmm. It's a study that is done by brand leadership. Over 28 countries that constitutes of, 28 African countries that constitutes of 80% of African consumers. Mm-hmm. And with over 30,500 unique brand mentions. And here's this brand that started in a room in LX has made it to that list, mm-hmm. you know? Not only this year, but two consecutive years. Mm-hmm. Um, alongside brands that have been in existence for you know, centuries. 
And that really speaks to, you know, our vision of building a shoe brand that Africans can proudly affiliate with. That is a true testament of our vision and where we want to go in the appetite mm. because the mentions to come from Kenya, to come from Angola, to mm. come from, you know, all these African countries says that there is something that we're doing, right? And there is an appetite. Mm. We also use insights like data from our e-commerce or omni-channel through online sales, you know, where we can see who's shipping our side, who's bought our shoes from, where, where are they from in, in, in the continent, you know, or in the world. So the plan is obviously, you know, to convert the appetite in different strategies, starting mm-hmm. with SEDEC going to East and West Africa. Would you say that the e-commerce platform has kind of opened the brand up a lot more? And how are you balancing the stores and the physical stores and the e-commerce? How, how are you bridging that gap? So when we started, we, we were very heavy on rolling out our retail stores. Mm-hmm. Then the pandemic happened and South Africa was under hard lockdown for a good, I think, six weeks or so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from March 2020. And that was a great opportunity for us to press reset button because we were rolling stores at a speed of light, basically, you know, mm-hmm. not realizing that we're actually leaving our omni-channel behind. So when lockdown happened, it forced us to, to press a pause and to look deep into our omni-channel online store and all of it Mm. and think about ways to optimize the omni-channel, not only that, but integrate it with the brick-and-mortar stores. Mm. And post that integration, we've seen our online store becoming number one store over all the other stores, Mm. you know, over the the, the brick-and-mortar stores. And that is through a, a process of thorough integration and optimization. And we've also seen innovation coming from the integration as well, in a sense that you now can buy your, your battery on, on, on an online store and go collect it at the physical store. Mm. You can buy your battery in Cape Town for your cousin who's in Durban and say, I'm going to go into Cape Town store and buy the battery, but I want this battery to be, this, to be collected at Durban store. We can do those kind of things. Or you can actually return a shoe in store, you can buy it online and go get it exchanged in store and say, I've actually bought this shoe online. Here's my order confirmation. Uh, but the shoe does not fit me, you know, when I received it. So I'm going to go to the store and yeah. exchange it yeah. in the store. Mm. So that level of innovation and integration. And what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to say is that because of we are an emerging brand and we also are, are growing collectively with our consumer mm. and we are in control of the value chain, we can, man- we can afford to make you know, our change is quicker. We are agile mm, to change mm. um, and, and adapt quicker than the big groups, you know, uh, the big groups that have consumers that have been shopping at them for the last three years. Mm. And their experience with the brand is that I need to go into store. Mm. So to tell someone who's been buying store for you at your branded store for 20 years, to tell them now that they need to go online and these reality points, it, it becomes difficult for that consumer, mm. you know. But because we are emerging and we are agile, we can go on a journey immediately with our consumer, mm. whatever journey it is. Mm. So, so we leverage from that as well. That's a very powerful position to be in as a brand. Yeah. And now just because uh, I know that you must have so many things happening, just last um, two or three questions. So the first one is just around entrepreneurship and culture. Mr. Easy actually mentioned about how in this decade is when African culture is our biggest export, you know, our creative and our culture is our biggest export. Yeah. And then we also hear all the time about how entrepreneurship is going to play such a huge role in changing the unfortunate situation that we have in the continent where many young people are unemployed. 
you are merging these two, which I think is so powerful because I listened to an interview where you spoke about how, wow, as Africans, we need to be proud of our culture and our creativity. And so you're merging these two. If you were in a position of power, hypothetically, where you could um, implement particular laws or rules or policies that would make things easier for entrepreneurship to thrive in South Africa and also in Africa, what would you say those those key policy and changes would be? So very good question. And I think it's a question that is very close to my heart. So I always say this, you know, and I really agree with the sentiment that, you know, um, Africa is at a point whereby we need to, uh, there's an appetite to export, export talent, export ideas, export heritage. Because if you look at Africa alone, we are a very rich continent, mm-hmm. rich in heritage, you know, uh, different ways of speaking, different ways of, you know, wearing our cultural clothes, different types of food as well. And it's about time that we take that diversity and our heritage and embody it into businesses, into ecosystems, Mm. or even talent that we can own and export to the rest of the world. Mm. We as a continent have been at the receiving end for the longest of time. The receiving end of the latest technology, the latest app, the latest fashion trend. It has to start somewhere before we can accept it as ours. Mm. Typical example, even our very own talent, until someone or the international audience approves them and verifies them and, and rewards their talent, we don't reward it. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, Trevor Noah has to leave South Africa mm. before we can proudly say that's our talent. Mm. You know, a banner boy has to leave Nigeria mm. before we can say that's our talent. Mm. Going back, I would be very strong in having policies that advocate talent, that advocate and protect and amplifies businesses and ecosystems that brings about change mm. and that has an appetite of strong export mm. to the rest of the world. Mm. Build an infrastructure that really allows and supports growth and export in so many ways without having, you know, gatekeepers. Yeah. To a point that we even maybe go further and say, our ambassadors have to be true advocates of our products and services and business and talent, even starting with our president. Mm. That if you're a president in South Africa, the suit that you're wearing, the phone that you should be using, your presence has to speak about your your country in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so that so that we can advocate for that. I mean, if there's a local cell phone somewhere in Africa, the president should be using that, you know, and advocating for that, yeah. as opposed to them even being an advocate of international products. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, in South Africa, I'll talk about South Africa because I understand the policies. You find policies in customs that were implemented before democracy that are still in play today. Mm. South Africa says, if I'm going to import a machine, I want to build a factory, I need to pay 40% of the duties. But I'm going to use this machine to create employment. Mm. So why are you discouraging me? If you if you want to discourage imports, you know, but why are you letting it even to a point that when you're even importing something that is going to bring about change and job creation that is going to contribute to the GDP, we still impose a 40%, you know, input duty. And hmm. a, a, a policy that has been there for over centuries in today's age. But you want to talk about supporting businesses. Hmm. So that's a practical thing to say, hmm. to say the policy should, should really look into different business case, hmm. business case, and we enforce those policies so that we can be true advocates hmm. of talent, businesses, ecosystems, that are going to be, you know, exported. I had to build a factory. I'm importing machines. I want to build a factory so that I can create a thousand jobs. How do you benchmark me with someone who's importing a product 
at 40%. Yeah. Why can't we discount it and say, if you're importing a machine and you're going to create employment, let's at least pay 5% because we understand that we need to pay taxes so that we sustain our country, right? Mm. But wh- why can't we just say, have an exemption and say, for the ones that are about job creation, mm. the ones that are about impact, if you're importing something that's going to create impact in the country, then maybe the laws is different. I love that you are very passionate about philanthropy. I um, mean, you've got a fantastic CSI project. I'd love for you to please share it with, um, with the audience, what that is and how that changed uh, the trajectory of your business. Thank you so much. So uh, we are a business that has been supported by, by the people, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at the way we started our business, we, I used my savings capital to start the business and we really started pushing our business. You know, and, and because people believe in a moving car uh, and we realized that there's, there's a lot of people that have supported our business. Mm. But we've done a study around how brands, you know, interact and build loyalty with their consumers. Mm. And and the biggest mistakes that I, I really understand is that, that we identified is that brands or businesses in general, they really care about a consumer that can contribute to the bottom line today. Mm. You know, they, they want to sell to a guy who can buy their products today or services today. But what about your future consumer? Someone who cannot afford to buy your services and products today. Mm. But tomorrow, they are a Trevor Noah. Mm. Tomorrow, they are the president of the country. Our brand says that we want to walk the journey with anyone who's in a journey of greatness. Mm. Because if you think about it, you don't put on a shoe unless you're about to embark on a journey. Mm. And we want Batu to be a shoe of choice. Mm. So in amplifying our brand promise of your journey, we want to start that journey, not only when you are a president or you are the CEO of a JSE listed company, but from primary level, because you are our future consumer. Mm. So when you're still in primary school, we want to come to you and walk that journey by giving you school shoes for free Mm. and maybe even take it further into grade three, grade four, to higher education, you know, to possibly even sponsoring your post-grad or higher education so that one day when you are a CEO of a JSE listed company or you are a CEO of a, of a company that is on the London Stock of Exchange or you are the president you know, of a country, you can know who walked the journey with you. Mm. When you are a Trevor Noah, mm. we're not coming to you and saying, now nah, because we are a Trevor Noah, we want to affiliate our brand with you. Mm. We're saying that from primary level, we want to be affiliated with you because we believe in your greatness and we want to be a part of your chain. Mm. And our, our project is called Bar 24 Bar to Care Project. We took some of our proceeds, invested into this, and the aim is to donate 1 million pairs of school shoes for free mm. in the next 10 years. Mm. We have currently donated about 45,000 pairs to date. Mm. We've done this with our own proceeds. And the idea and the big question and the big ask, if I may you know, um, you know, say on this platform, that we are looking for a corporate sponsor mm. that is going to help us mm. make sh- achieve this dream of one million pairs of school shoes donated. Mm. So that is our CSI. It's mm. called Bar 2 for Bar 2 Care Project. Now, Theo, just two last questions. The first one, I want to know how you were selling sneakers for $22,440. That's approximately 379,000 grand. Yeah. You sold each yeah. sneaker at that amount. I looked at this and I'm like, Mm-mm, I want to know. <laughs> do the math and the calculation. But also I thought it was a mm-hmm. powerful strategic partnership. So how did you get 50 limited yeah. editions Batu sneakers each sold at 379,000 rand, which for the audience outside of South Africa is 22,440 US dollars. So how did that happen? So here's the catch, right? So 
we did a campaign with Opel, yeah. the, the car brand. Uh-huh. So they were launching a new Opel Astra mm-hmm. at the time. No, no, I think it was Corsa, Opel Corsa mm-hmm. at the time. This was about a few years ago, two years ago. We got into collaboration with them and the car was costing around that, I think 347,000 rands, mm-hmm. something like that. And, you know, the catch was, they, you buy the sneaker, you get the car for free. <laughs> I love that. So that is the campaign that we ran. So it's not that we were selling the sneaker, you know, at that amount, but the cash we we're saying that if you buy the sneaker, you get a car for free. Yeah. And we went on to a campaign, yeah. you know? So it was just one of the, 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 the marketing, I think, mechanics that we used to sell to, uh, to amplify the collaboration. So they were saying that the first 50 people to buy the sneaker, they get a coffee free. Fantastic. I love that. And finally, there's something yeah. that you always say, which I think is incredible. It reminds me of a TD Jake's quote where he says, when people praise you, keep walking. When people criticize you, keep walking. The thing is that you've got to keep walking. You said something about how you don't live in the halls of your trophies, something like that. Can you please clarify mm-hmm. and explain yes. and expand on that? You know, if you look at when I started, my intention was very clear and I had to follow my my call mm. and follow my papers more than anything else. Mm. So I, I left my job and I was not fired. I was actually up for promotion. <laughs> I left my job in the UAE, yeah. came home, came back home with the sole mission of reigniting hope and creating sustainable jobs. Mm. It was never for, you know, at the time, the papers has always been there and it, it is still there that reigniting hope and creating sustainable jobs. It was never for the recognition. It was never for the limelight. It was never for me to be a role model to anyone. Mm. It was solely because I had a calling that I responded to. Today, having built the business that we built, really humbled, truly humbled by the recognition, accolades, Pan-Africa, great institutions, great corporates, recognizing our work and, you know, awarding us. Mm truly humbled by that mm. and it's inspiring to me too to keep going mm. but with that being said i don't spend time in the trophy room mm. and that is why i don't have a big head yeah because mine is to reignite hope and create sustainable jobs that's what i'm here for mm. and that is why my approach is if i do get an opportunity to know about a milestone before i don't announce it immediately yeah i get to go back be grateful for it you know i speak to the higher power you know, before anything else. By the time I put it up, I'm already over it. I'm on to the next one. Mm. When the congratulations come, they don't go to my head. They just go to my heart and I move on. Because when you're in a spare of a moment and you're still excited, it's easy for the world wishes to go to your head mm. and you have a big head. Mm. So with me, I try to spend time appreciating it before announcing anything. By the time I announce it, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm well over there. It's gone. I'm on to the next one. So even when people are hating on the on, on the news, it's all news to me. You hate <laughs> on something that I've, I've, I'm over. Yeah. You know? So your hate won't impact me. You know, your criticism won't, even if you say like, something negative, I'm over it, dude. I got that two weeks ago. I'm on the journey to the next one. So that's my approach. I, I love that. Yeah. Theo Beloy, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. I've honestly learned so much. I believe that your story is only just starting. You're only like laying the foundations now. I I, I believe that the world is going to know um, the Batu Sneakers name. I believe that you're going to, just even around the continent, you're going to change the destiny of so many people. And I just love the fact that you're proof that there's great leadership because as much as you're a strong entrepreneur, you're a fantastic leader as well. So just congratulations 
Jones and everything. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Batu for Batu, people for people. That's what your sneakers are about 100%. Thank you so much, Theo. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. That's all that we have time for in this episode of the Africa Whisperer. Thank you so much for your time and for listening. I hope that you do share this with all your networks. And I hope that more than anything that you leave inspired and realizing what is truly possible when you put your heart and mind to it. Please be sure to go to www.theafricawhisperer.com. Also, it's Lee Kasumba on all social media platforms. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you so much. Don't forget to rate and review and to share this link with all your friends. Thank you.